Kathy's right, water is life. You'd be hard-pressed to find a spot on this planet, on the earth at least, not you know in the salt ocean, but a spot on this planet where there's plenty of water and there isn't plenty of life. My parents had the exact same priority when they were buying their most recent house. It's got to have running water. How long can a body live without water? We say water is life, but we can go without. In fact, most of us do survive with chronic dehydration. If we're honest, the chart doesn't ask whether you're dehydrated. It asks you, how dehydrated are you? Because it it turns out most of us are living with some level of lack, some level of chronic low on our tank. If you're wondering if the goal of my sermon today is to make everybody thirsty by constantly talking about this, the answer is unequivocally yes. That is definitely the goal. Let's keep our strength up. You can go for a day, they say even almost a week, without water. But there is a price being paid, a toll, a lifetime lived with chronic dehydration. How dehydrated was Jesus at the well? It was noon. As they used to say, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun. Which one was Jesus? Which one was the Samaritan woman? But there they meet at the least popular time of day to be out in the middle of of the Samaritan countryside with the sun beating down. And Jesus is physically, literally thirsty. Or just looking to start up a conversation, perhaps a little bit of both, and asks for a drink. Jesus is at a little bit of a crisis time at this moment, although it seems like we never talk about Jesus when he isn't. But some interesting things have just happened in the Gospel of John. Jesus has started to overshadow his mentor, John the Baptist. Jesus has started to see more people being baptized by his followers than by John's in Judea, in the area around Jerusalem. And John's followers are getting upset about it. Now, when they ask John the Baptist himself, he says, hey, it's all for the good. He must get big, I must get little, it's all for the sake of the movement, this is fine. But Jesus is getting in hot water with the Pharisees, with John's followers, with a large group in Judea who might normally be his friends, but his meteoric rise, his sudden popularity, makes people suspicious. And so he's heading home. He's going back north up to Galilee. He's letting things cool off for a little while. And he's wondering, what do I have to offer? Why should it be me instead of John the Baptist? Why should my star be rising while his is falling? Jesus is feeling thirsty at the well. He's feeling a little bit like a launched arrow. Something that has been pushed, impelled forward, but he's not sure exactly where it's going to land. He feels a little bit like 
a person betrothed. There's been a promise, but the realization hasn't come around yet. He's feeling a little bit like the Israelites felt in Exodus 17. Released from captivity in Egypt, but not yet to the promised land. Promised, but not yet given. How dehydrated were the Israelites? Not just physically, but spiritually too. They come questioning Moses, questioning God, doubting whether God is among them. Seeking a sign of care. A sign that God will not abandon them. That there is hope out here in the wilderness. That things will be well. This gap between offer and fulfillment. This living on hope is not just the story of the people of Israel. Not just the story of the suffering servant, the story of Jesus. We're used to connecting those. There are so many prophecies that refer to Israel, the people, that refer to the suffering servant, the leader of Israel, that refer to Jesus. And we're used to connecting those threads. But I contend, my friends, that this living in between promise and fulfillment, this thirst at the well, is the story of you and me, is the human condition. It's the story of the Samaritan woman, too, even though she's the one with the bucket. Because as we, become, we quickly see in the conversation between Jesus and this unnamed Samaritan, she was thirsty too, but not for water, not literal water. And Jesus could see it. Jesus knew it right away. How long can the body live without water? How long can the spirit live without love, without security, without knowing that you are cared for. Long enough for a pandemic to rage across the earth and wane? These are times of isolation. Sensible isolation in many cases, but blind, terrified, irrational isolation in other cases. People feeling parched on the inside. So they buy pallet after pallet of water. Pallet after pallet of toilet paper. Telling themselves that supplies could run out. As though running out of toilet paper were a lethal condition. Telling themselves that this purchase, that this act of going out and stocking up will bring them the hydration they really need, that sense of reassurance, that sense of being cared for, of being loved. It works a little bit. When when Molly and I went out and bought a couple extra gallons of milk to stick in the freezer, you know, there's this feeling of security when you've got a well-stocked larder. But it doesn't cut to the base of the issue. It doesn't address the real thirst 
What's the longest that you've lived without love? For me, in my absurdly blessed life, my experience has been mostly the same as my experience with water. That is, I've never been totally without it, totally without any way to get it for more than an afternoon, maybe a day. Long enough to get thirsty, long enough to get a little bit desperate, start looking for water in places that you never normally would. The longer it goes, the more urgent your search becomes. Maybe you chase after relationships. Maybe like the woman at the well, when you are starved, chronically dehydrated for love, you have five husbands and a sixth partner in the wings. You survive, but the thirst never leaves you. Because like the woman's partner's, like the panic buyer's toilet paper, it doesn't satisfy the fundamental need. It, you can string yourself along from one small drop of water to the next, but it will never be sufficient. The need to be loved unconditionally is not going to be quenched by temporary things, by any one person, not by me, Not by anyone. Just as any jar of water, no matter how hydrating and wholesome, will eventually be empty, any one person who loves you will at some point be separate from you. To remain life-giving, a jar needs a source. Be it a rain-fed cistern, or a spring-fed well, or a flowing river, And this is where the metaphor of living water, running water, becomes so important in the Bible. Because the ancient farmers who lived in Judea understood quite well that eventually all water comes from heaven. All water comes from the sky. Even the stuff from the well, they can see it get lower and lower and lower as the water table drops until it rains and the well fills up. So even the water that looks like it comes from the ground is, in fact, from on high. And it flows. It moves. That movement is a sign of its source. That It's a sign that it's relatively fresh and clean and drinkable. And it's a sign that it is coming from above, coming from the rain cycle. It is the same way with love. Our need for community, for affection, our need to be seen and heard, held and cared for cannot be satisfied simply or temporarily. Even the needs of children, little people, are overwhelming when their entire heart is hung on a single caregiver. It's a lot easier when you have a village to raise a child. Because then the child learns not to just place everything on one relationship and become ultra-dependent on this one caregiver, but rather is forced to see that love abounds. Love comes from many unexpected angles. Love comes from on high like the rainfall and sprouts forth from within, a wellspring ever-flowing. 
As Jesus put it, my, wor- my water becomes a spring inside them. It moves, it flows, it runs. For what it's worth, Jesus also talks about food in a similar way. We often forget about the second half of the story you just read, where Jesus is talking about how he doesn't need a meal because he's feeling so satisfied that the Samaritans are receptive to the message. He said, you know, we didn't, you didn't sow the seeds here in this countryside, but here we are, we waltz in, and the harvest is ready. People are joining up. This whole town, he stays for two days. And a large portion of this Samaritan town where neither Jesus nor his Jewish disciples had sown the word still produces a bountiful harvest. Like water, food is a metaphor for for what we need, what sustains us. Like water, food ultimately comes from the sun, comes from heaven comes from things outside of our control, but like water, food must be cultivated, cared for, respected. It's going to be a little bit of a rough passage for a lot of us. And those of us who have family to get sick of are the lucky ones. There will be people in this community who, sensibly or not, rationally or irrationally, are going to be fundamentally alone in the coming weeks. And those of you who work in the mental health field know that loneliness is dangerous. Loneliness carries its own risks. They say that when you think that a uh, natural disaster is coming, you're supposed to fill up your bathtub, right? That's the, that's the first move so that you've got at least some water, even if it's not particularly clean water, you can boil it or whatever, you've got it for washing, you've got some water. We need, my friends, to be filling up our spiritual bathtubs, aware that a dry spell may be coming, filling ourselves with love, with confidence, with a sense of connection, not just with the people who attend in this community, not just with our immediate neighbors, but with that ultimate wellspring of confidence and love, Christ's water, which is growing in our hearts. Unfortunately, it is going to be rather difficult to know just how much people are suffering. Part of the risks of isolation is that it becomes very, very difficult to keep tabs on each other. And we're terrible at keeping tabs on ourselves. Unlike literal hydration with real water, we don't have a nice color-coded system for determining how spiritually dehydrated we are. Mood rings aren't a thing, and the different colors that we associate are frankly subjective. There's no objective test. But the color of our urine isn't the only way to become aware of dehydration. In fact, 
Many health experts say that if you're relying on that test, you're already a step behind. You're already going to be dehydrated before you know about it. They talk about listening to your body. Of course, you know, if you feel thirsty or dry in your mouth, that's obvious. But also the headaches, the lack of energy, rapid heartbeat, rapid breathing. These signs of dehydration that we don't necessarily immediately associate with our need for water, but which nonetheless, if we are aware and paying attention to our own selves, will tell us in no uncertain terms, you need a glass of water. As with the spiritual, with the physical, so with the spiritual. Let us listen to our bodies, listen to our brains, listen to our minds. Be aware of the loneliness. Be aware of the fear. Be aware of the anxiety. Let that awareness clue you in. Time for a glass of water. Time to drink deep from that wellspring. Because no matter how dehydrated we are, if we are alive, we are already getting a little bit of water from somewhere. You see these pictures of towns that are in the middle of a desert, with, but they still have trees growing and people walking around and animals all over the place. And you wonder, how is that possible? Where are they getting it from? But clearly, they're getting it somewhere. Otherwise, they'd already be dead. So it is with love and hope and security. Yeah, we can go without it for a while, painfully. But where there is life, people are already finding some source of love. If we can pay attention to ourselves knowing that we need it. If we can look to where we are already getting it, the small ways, the, perhaps the incomplete ways, the temporary ways that we are al- be allowed to survive, the cups of water that satisfy our everyday thirst, then we can look at how those cups are filled by rainfall from on high by the one who ultimately is responsible for filling every cup. We can trace it back. So today, as you are invited forward to take a cup and receive some water, I want you to think about where you get love from. Where does love flow into your life? Because no matter how broken or incomplete that source may be, it will still ultimately always hearken back to the one who is the source of all love, the sun that is the source of all water in this metaphor. Even a difficult relationship, even a relationship that has regrets, If it has fed you, if it has sustained you, if it has been for a moment a source of clear, clean, life-giving water, then it must at some point 
have partaken of something good, had something worthwhile in it, something worth paying attention to as it guides you back to the source. And then, as you finish your cup of water, I want you to think about where the water goes once it flows through you. How it passes into others around you where you give love and find its source, a wellspring eternal. The metaphor breaks down, which is why it always falls into this this, this uh, eternal or uh, flowing language. It's not a perfect metaphor between water and love. They're not the same thing. Which is why people always got confused when Jesus started talking this way. He was trying to bring it to people in terms as real as he could, but every time they take him literally... And they say, well, you don't have a bucket, so how are you going to offer me any water? He has to back, dial the conversation back and bring them around to understanding what he's talking about. It is a metaphor, but it's an apt one. Because ultimately, we know we need it. We know we need love as surely as we need hydration. Ultimately, we know that we are part of distributing it, purifying it, passing it around, that our hands are the hands that hold the jars that carry the water. But we also know that ultimately we are not the source of it. That it comes to us, and if we are doing our job right, comes through us into a dry and parched world. I hope I've made you thirsty. Here are cups, and here is water. I invite you to take your own cup and then hold it as I will handle the pitcher and pour water in. I know that if we can learn to see the, tr- the clean sources of water in our life, if we can lear- discern where the goodness is coming from, our bodies and our lands will flourish as surely as if we have a clean source of water in our valley, in our community. That true source is shown to us today in this story by Jesus of Nazareth. God's word made flesh. Water that runs from heart to heart and truly quenches our human need forever.